if you want to find your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. It's really good to see all of you here this morning. When I was a kid growing up in central Montana, I grew up in a little town called White Sulphur Springs, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, kind of surrounded by mountains. And every kid has somebody or someone that just kind of captures their attention. Um, and for me, uh, it was the folks that were a part of the search and rescue team in our town. Uh, these were highly skilled, trained individuals that when someone got lost in the mountains, they were mobilized. And, and it happened. People would get lost in the mountains for a variety of reasons. Some simply were unfamiliar with the territory. It's easy to get lost. Others were out of shape. They didn't have maps. They didn't really exactly know what they were doing. And they would get lost. And so uh, people could get lost for a variety of reasons. Uh, during the summer, when they would get lost, um, the search and rescue team would be mobilized with horses, um, four-wheel drive vehicles. In the winter, uh, they would use snowmobiles, uh, have guys on snowshoes. If they needed to climb up a mountain and the snow was so thick, they had access to these snowcats, and they could just climb right up wherever they needed to be. And how it worked in our town is when there was uh, word got out that someone was lost, Within an hour, not only the search and rescue team, but about 50 and 60 other individuals, folks from the town, uh, people with like the Department of Agriculture, Forest Service, ranchers, everybody got mobilized because when someone was lost, time was of the essence. Now, most searches lasted about three to four hours, and they would find the individual. About once or twice a year, there would be a full search. Most of these searches occurred during the fall and winter, especially when you'd have hunters that would come in from out of state or out of town. Uh, they'd get lost. Occasionally, it'd be a snowmobile or a cross-country skier. And a full search would last about 8 to 10 hours, sometimes even more. But eventually, they found the person that was lost. But on rare occasions, uh, they actually didn't find the individual in time. I remember one time, uh, there was a young guy who got lost in the forest. I mean, they searched hard for this guy. They couldn't find him. They found him in the spring, froze into a tree. You see, when someone is lost, immediately the focus becomes, we need to find this individual. Time was short. The stakes are high. And rescuing the lost would become the top priority. Now, you come here this Easter morning. And some of you are wondering, like, why... Is Easter such a big deal? And why did Jesus really come to this earth? You need to understand that Jesus came to this earth on a search and rescue mission. He said so himself. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, said this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so when you come to Luke chapter 15, you see Jesus in the very midst of his search and rescue mission. And there were some people that were around Jesus that you would expect, and some others that you're thinking, like, wow, why would they even be near him? Take a look at it. Verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. How unexpected. And you need to know how to say these words. Tax collectors. These were the most despised people in the Jewish community. 
For they themselves were Jews who had sold out to the Roman Empire to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen. And how Rome worked it out is they had certain fees that they wanted, but they said, listen, if you want to put extra assessments on, you can do that. And they've had, they were able to make exorbitant fees and collect quite a bit of wealth by taxing their countrymen. Now, you need to understand, they were completely despised. And then there was also these sinners. Sinners was the general category of anyone who couldn't keep the law or to keep the law like the Pharisees. Whether they could care less, it didn't matter. Uh, maybe their occupation forced them to not be able to follow all the rules and the laws that were established. And so you had a general category of these people that were just referred to as sinners. These are the ones that were very attracted to Jesus. And Jesus seemed to spend a, like to spend time with them. But then, of course, you had some folks that you thought would be around Jesus, but they're responding quite surprisingly. Look at this, verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them, implying that he, he actually enjoys being with them and their companionship. Now, the Pharisees were the separatists of the day. They would distinguish themselves by wearing uh, their own set of clothing, and they set themselves apart. They made a critical error. In fact, this error is still even practiced today. To equate the tradition the traditions of the elders with Scripture. They put them on equal par. And what it does is it creates legalists. It creates ritualistic people trying to fulfill certain functions, doing things, having works, and that, they think, makes themselves right with God. And then we're also were the scribes. These were the lawyers of the day, the ones that studied the Scripture. And yet, those who studied the Scripture and seemed to set themselves apart to God, these Pharisees, they were grumbling, murmuring. They had no use for this Jesus who would spend time with tax collectors and sinners. You see, they didn't understand the nature of God. They didn't understand compassion. They certainly didn't understand grace. And so Jesus, in the midst of his search and rescue mission, he begins to tell them parables. He wants them to understand the true nature of God. Now, a parable is to take something that is familiar and lay it aside something that is not as familiar. So, for instance, he's going to tell them something they know to teach them a truth that they simply had never comprehended. And so he begins by telling them this story of the lost sheep. Verse 3, so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus says this, Listen, I tell you, that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, if you hear the word shepherd and you kind of got a, in your mind a, a kind of a male version of little Bo Peep, you would be mistaken. Shepherds were strong. They were tough. Uh, for instance, when David gives his credentials on why he's going to take on Goliath the giant, he's like, listen, I've killed a bear and a lion. I don't think this big boy is going to be a problem. But David was a shepherd. And shepherds were responsible for all the sheep. They were needed to bring back every single one of them, not not just a few of them, not just most of them, all of them. 
if they, the sheep were under attack, if there was some sort of trouble, if there was an injury, the shepherd step, uh, actually stepped in. If he had to fight to protect the sheep, he'd do it. And so it makes sense. One sheep is lost. He goes out. He finds it. He straps it over his shoulders, and he brings it back. And then he gathers his friends together and says, Hey, man, I found the lost sheep, and the party is on. We have got to celebrate. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. The word repents means to change direction, to change 180 degrees. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. And with it, there is an accompanied brokenness, like I've done it wrong, and so I'm going back. He says, there is joy in heaven. Heaven is a euphemism of speaking with God, about God when one returns. Well, that was one in a hundred. But Jesus can see that they still don't get the point. So he tells them another parable. He tells them the story of a lost coin. Now one in ten. So look at verse eight. Or what woman, uh, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. I mean, think of it. You've lost a coin, and now you need to find it. Uh, years ago, when I was in high school and in college, I worked in a department store. And uh, one of the situations that would arise would be like a, um, a child would suddenly go missing. And, and you would know, because generally one of the parents went into a panic. And I've, I've personally seen this firsthand because I've had four kids, you know, and the, man, you love your children tremendously and the last thing you want is them to end up on the side of a milk carton. And so the word would go out, there's a lost child. So we'd go and look in the usual places, right? Like they were generally hiding underneath the rack, sometimes even watching everybody running around. They thought this was amusing or they'd be in the back room somewhere, but we would find it, bring the child to the office, the announcement would make, and then this parent would come running, the lady would have tears in her eyes, she'd grab that child, like, whoa, hold on, we're going to try to keep the child alive now that he's been found, right? But we understand that when someone is lost, that you go and seek them, well, this woman here, she's, she has these ten silver coins, perhaps uh, this was given to her as a dowry from her dad on the day she was married. Jewish women would wear ten silver coins, a drachma, in their hair to symbolize that they were married. It was very much the, like the equivalent of our modern-day wedding ring. But she has lost it. She's lost one of these coins. Maybe it's all the budget that she had for that season. So she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully for it until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so you see this woman, she's, she's lost the coin. Perhaps it's fallen in one of the crevices in the rocks. She's, she's got this little oil lamp. It doesn't give much light, but it gives some. She's got a broom because she's listening to hear that coin. And she's sweeping. And once she finds the lost coin, look what she does. She gathers all her friends and neighbors and she has a huge party, and she uses the other nine coins to pay for it, right? And she just has this huge party because, you know why? When the lost has been found, there is great rejoicing, and that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, changes direction. 
Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are absolutely shocked by what they're hearing. You and I, we've, we've actually probably heard this story before, but they hadn't. This is not God as they knew him. They are shocked that Jesus is actually saying that God actually searches for lost sinners and has great joy when they come to him, when he, when he finds them. You see, God finds great joy when the lost are found. God supremely values his own joy. And there is immense joy that God experiences when lost people are brought back into rightful relationship with himself. But obviously there are some folks that simply do not understand. And so now Jesus is going to drive home the point. He is going to tell the parable of the lost sons, both reflected by the people that are around him. And really, it gives us a clear picture of what does it really look like to be lost. What does it look like? You know, sometimes when people get lost, they actually try to trick themselves into thinking that they're not lost, and they keep plowing further and further away from any sort of security or safety. Well, I want you to see what does it look like when you're lost. So, verse 11, and Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. Let me give you the first characteristic of someone who is lost. They are self-centered. Their motto is, give me. Their whole orientation is about themselves. What do I want? They will violate any custom, any social more. They will manipulate people because after all, they are driven to get what they want. Because when you're lost, self occupies the throne of your life. And that's what you see with this boy. And by the way, you don't have to learn this kind of behavior. It's built into our DNA. When you're lost, you're self-centered. Let me show you also from verse 12 another characteristic of being lost. And that is that you are sinning against the Father. Did you see this? I noticed that none of you really reacted to the statement when he said, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. In essence, what this boy is saying, listen, I wish that you were dead. But since you're not, I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. He's basically asking for his inheritance early. I want it now. This this was so publicly humiliating. The harsh words, the heartache, the deep disrespect to hear these words from your own son. I mean, if you're a parent, you know how much you love your kids. You would do anything for them. And to have this disrespect and this disregard for him to just blatantly, openly say, listen, I wish you were dead. Give to me what I've got coming. And not only is he asking for his inheritance early, but he's going to cash out his estate. The father graciously he does that. He divided his wealth between them. You see that in verse 12? Now, you need to understand that this is all that this father had to live on. This is his, his wealth. Now, there was no social security system in those times. And just by the way, likely there will be no security when you need it, okay? Just want you to know. What this man had was his land. It was his livelihood. And eventually he would pass it on to his children. And how it would work, according to the law, 
is that the oldest would get a double portion and then the rest would be divided. So if the man has two sons, the oldest son would eventually get two-thirds, the younger one-third. And wealth was basically measured in land and livestock. And so what this boy wants is he wants his father's livelihood. And he wants it now. And look at this. He, he asks for the wealth. The father gives it to him. And then verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Let me give you another trait of those who are lost. They are separated from their father. See, he's abandoned his father and his family. He's rejected their love. And what he's doing, he's just kind of cutting his dependence. He's like, I want it on my own. I just give me what I, I want. I want it now. He liquidates the land and the livestock. If you have to sell something quickly, you generally have to move it at a discount price. But he doesn't matter if he has to sell it cheap. He just wants all of this land, all this livestock that he could care less about. And he wants it down to currency. And he wants it now. And so he does. You see that? He gathered everything together. He liquidates it. And he goes on his journey into a distant country. See, he's separating himself from the Father. People, when they want to sin, they don't want accountability. They don't want people that know them, like their family, to see this. So you go somewhere else. He's going to go a long, long ways away. Really, this describes the human condition. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but listen to this, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You're twisting, you're fleeing from God, your disobedience, your disregard for God, it's created a separation. The Father's not left you, you've left. You're out pursuing your own life on your own terms. Just like this boy. And rejections of God and his ways and his work and his word. That is the human condition. Like Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way. We've all done it. We're, we're all like this. You see, God created us so that we'd know him and enjoy him. And we're cutting our dependence from him. Let me give you a fourth characteristic of someone who's lost. You find it also there in verse 13. Squandering resources. You see that? So this younger son, he takes off on a journey to a distant country, and there he squanders his estate with loose living. Squander has the idea of scattering everywhere. And you see that word loose, loose living? That's where we get the word prodigal. Most of you know this story as the prodigal son. And that's where it's come from, the word Loose. To live prodigally is to live recklessly. Moral abandonment. You don't care about what's right and wrong. Sexual immorality is to live life as if God doesn't exist or that his way matters. And so he squanders everything. Lost people investing in lost causes. And by the way, sin has a high price. You need to understand that sin is a very expensive business. I mean, there's lost time, lost memories. Lost health, lost credibility, lost respectability. You know, and some of these things, they may not come back. And some, they only come back over time. But when you're lost, you don't even think about those things. You just squander the resources. And that leads us to verse 14, where you see another characteristic of lost people. 
they are senseless. They are short-term in their thinking. Look at this, verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. There was a crop failure. There was a depression. There was a famine. And it caused prices to soar. And it caused jobs to be at a premium. And here is this young man, and all his fantasies have now become nightmares. He had lived for his own self-indulgence. You see, when you're lost, you don't think about the future. In fact, it, it, you're so focused on the here and now. It, the world conditions us to think about what you want now, what feels good now. You don't think about the eternal, you're just focused on the temporal. And it's kind of this live for the moment. I mean, look at in media. What is presented in all these shows and all the screens, they never show you the consequences for sinful action. It's as if they don't exist, or better yet, we'll just make it a joke. This idea of live for the moment, friends, it's the condition of the lost. Years ago when I was working in the business community in Portland, Oregon, uh, we had a client come in, and this guy was in tough shape. Uh, he was in a wheelchair. He controlled the wheelchair with one hand. He was pale. He looked ill. He was emaciated. And I, I helped him with the business that he needed to take care of. I helped him out the door. And I went back and talked to one of my coworkers. I said, what happened? He said he just did this. Drinking and driving. This guy had become a paraplegic because of an alcohol-related accident. You need to understand that your every bad decision has a price, and you will pay that price. We don't want to think about it. God has tried to make this crystal clear. Remember in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Whatever seeds you sow will reap, be reaped. It's kind of like this, you know, um, he's just out there, she's out there just sowing their wild oats. Friends, those wild oats come to fruition. For this young man, he had not thought about any of this. This caught him completely off guard. You see, when you're lost, you're senseless in your short term, and you're thinking, let me give you another characteristic of being lost. You are severely needy. Look at this, verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. He is so hungry. Here is this Jewish boy, and he, has, he has needs help desperately. And so, verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. So here is this Jewish man actually feeding and taking care of an animal that to, in the Jewish faith was deemed as the ultimate of the unclean animals. A Jewish person wouldn't even touch a pig, and now this guy finds himself feeding pigs. He is severely needy. It's like, how did you end up that way? There is an old preacher that put it this way. You see, as this man's money disappeared, why he needed to sell his clothes in order to eat. So his clothes, his coat, he took that off and he sold that. He became hungry again, and so he took off his shoes and sold those. And then he took off his shirt and sold that. And then he came to himself. 
And so he goes and he sells himself in to working for a man who's going to take advantage of him. He is so hungry. He is starving. And you see that? Look at this. He began to be impoverished, and he can't. There's nothing he can do. Verse 15. So he went out and hired himself out to one of these citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. He would have eaten those carob pods, but the problem is they're not humanly digestible. That's the problem. He would have maybe even tried it. Maybe he even got right there on his knees with them. You see, when you're, when you're lost, you become severely needy. Chuck Swindoll said this, Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. And this young man is about to come to reality. You know, this would be a tremendously grievous story. But uh, I want you to see what's taking place here. I want you to see the changing of a life. You want to see what life change looks like. All you need to do is begin there in verse 17. Look at this. The changing of a life. But when he came to his senses, all of a sudden he starts to see things as they really are. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. He starts to think about his dad. Whoa, you know, my dad, his hired men, they have more than enough to eat. Now, their hired men, many people, this is how they function. They received a day's wage for their work, and it was just enough for them to live on. The law was very clear. You had to pay them that day because they couldn't afford to wait a day. The idea of waiting two weeks, no. I need to be paid today if I'm going to eat. Well, he says, you know, my father, with his hired men, he actually gives them even more than what's required. He says, "Ah, I know that my father is gracious. And so he's coming to his senses. And notice this, he's also convicted of his sin. When When you're actually seeing a changed life, you see people coming to their senses. There's a conviction of sin. Look at this, verse 18. He says, you know what? I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He takes personal responsibility. I have sinned. I sinned against heaven, a euphemism for God. I sinned against you. You see, when you're seeing a life change, you take personal responsibility for your actions. You're not a victim. You take responsibility This guy sees that my behavior has caused these problems. And notice what he says in verse 19. I'm going to go tell my father I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. And verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Friends, this is true repentance. Repentance is a change of heart, a brokenness, leading to a change of direction and a change of mind. This boy doesn't have regret. You know what regret is? Regret is what a self-centered approach like, oh, I hate that my actions have caused this, or I got caught. Oh, I regret this. No repentance is, I am broken. I am changing direction. God is changing my heart. And so he confesses his need. Whenever he's got this speech, he says, I'm going to get up, 
I'm going to tell my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. Would you just make me a hired servant? I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. He had high hopes of just becoming a servant. And so I want you to see this changing life, and I also want you to see the compassion of the Father. Look at this. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here, this father is looking for him. Perhaps every day he would walk his estate and he would look off into the distance and see, is my son coming home? Maybe it was the constant prayer of his life. Lord, bring him home. Bring brokenness and bring him back to me. Please, oh God. But then he suddenly sees in the distance. It's not like, ah, there's my son. Ah, that wretch. Wait till his mother gets him. No, it's none of that. He sees his son. And no Jewish man ran. It was considered undignified. But he pulls up the hem of his garment and he starts trucking it. He starts running. He sees his son. Here's his son. He's, He's full of all the pig slop. Dirty, tired, worn out, sweat, mud. And do you see that? He, he feels compassion for him. He loves him. He literally embraces him and starts kissing him. He's holding him tight. He's not like, oh, you got to get cleaned up or anything like that. The father absolutely loves his son. When Jesus said this, by the way, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were shocked. What? Self-respecting Jewish man ought to chastise him and make him an example. They were thinking, we would never act this way. And that's the point. You see, the one offended, the one offended and who has offended the deepest is the one who loves the strongest. This father had been deeply offended, but yet he loves the strongest. And this boy is stunned by grace. He, he did not expect any of this. And so, verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I'm, I'm unworthy of this. And, you know, the father, he doesn't even give him a chance to finish his speech. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. He loves him and he's lavishing him with gifts of celebration. Each one of these gifts that he gives this boy, the boy is still covered in pig slop and sweat. He doesn't have to clean himself up because you don't clean yourself up. The father just embraces you as you are. And he gives him, like, for instance, this robe. This is a sign of honor. This father would have a robe that was embroidered. He would only wear it on the most significant of occasions, like a child's wedding. And he says, I want that robe that speaks of great honor. Put it on him. And the ring, that would be the, the signet ring that had the emblem of his family. It speaks of authority. He says, take the family ring, that signet ring, and you put it on thy, my boy. And then he says, and those sandals. He has no sandals. Take my sandals and put them on his feet. Because sandals was a picture of sonship. Slaves generally didn't wear sandals. There's an old spiritual song that says this. When we get to heaven, all God's children are going to wear shoes like that because they are adopted children into his family. He says, put this on him now. And furthermore, he says, verse 23, bring out the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life 
again, he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. The fattened calf would be only slaughtered on the most special occasions, and that occasion has occurred. You see, that's what happens when you and I come to the Father. When you and I trust in the Son and come to the Father, he lavishes us with blessings beyond measure. It says in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, forgiveness, hope, life, peace, purpose. Do you know that God literally places his spirit in the lives of his people? All of these are gifts because you've been brought into the family if you will return and trust in the Son. You see, God's great joy is for us to experience his love. That is Christianity. God's great love is for us to experience the joy of being found. One word describes this father. Grace. But you remember, there were two sons, right? One son, man, he is wild and wretched, right? Reckless, rebellious. But there's another son. He's a lot like the Pharisees and the scribes. He is religious, self-righteous, cunning, and cold. So take a look at this. I want you to see the callous condition of the self-righteous. Verse 25, now this older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, What in the world is going on? What is this? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. This, this is so powerful. This boy has not any clue about the love of the father and you can see that because if you see how he responds, look at verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. To not, to not go in when the request was to, to, to come in as the oldest son, this would be a huge sign of disrespect to the father. And so just like the father searches for the reckless wild son, so he goes out to the re- religious, ritualistic one, the hard-hearted one. And he goes out. And I want you to see the condition. Really, it's a seventh characteristic of lost people. They are self-righteous. Look at this. The father is pleading with him, please come in. Verse 29, but he answered and said to his father, look. He doesn't even address him as father. Look, for so many years, I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, see that son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now the Pharisees and the scribes are like, it is about time someone stood up to this father. This is how we would react. This, this oldest son, he's got it. You see, this oldest son, he didn't understand the love of the father. That's why he never knew the joy of being a son. He didn't understand the love of the father. That's why he didn't know the joy of being a son. I'll tell you this. How you and I see people really determines how we treat people. If you see people as losers, you know what it does? It breeds contempt. But if you see people as lost, it fosters compassion. And so this father 
He's with the son. He is just as lost. Yeah, his behavior is different. You know, the self-righteous, they might be able to avoid some of the sins of passion, but what they never address is their heart. What God looks at. Their self-righteous, anger, jealous, mad, uh, judgmental behavior. They, they never see that because it's all about just doing some outside stuff. I, can, I highly doubt he followed all the commands of the Father, and he certainly do it, didn't do it with the right heart when he did. And so this father pleads with him and explains to him one more time. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. You see, the great love of the father is for the rescue of the lost. And that is why Jesus has come. You see, there could be no rescue apart from redemption. In order for the Father to bring sinful, wayward people, whether you're religious and ritualistic, or you're just wild and wretched, or you're somewhere in between, the only way you and I ever come to truly know the Father is through the Son, who must pay the penalty for our sins. That is why Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He authenticated his miracles that he's God. And he died as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. Why? For the wages of sin is death. Either you pay or he does. You can't, so he does. And he rose again on the third day, that first Easter morning, to authenticate to the world relationship with the Father is possible when you believe in me. For I give resurrected life, forgiveness, hope, Life, peace, and purpose when you will trust in me. After all, that's why he came. Jesus came on a search and rescue mission. See, the great joy of the Father is when the lost are reclaimed. There's a guy by the name of David Anderson. He writes about a a boy who grew up on a farm in Oklahoma uh, years ago. And this this guy made life so miserable for his parents when he eventually left home. Uh, He could barely read or write. His problems continued, so much so that he spent a good chunk of his life incarcerated. While he was in prison, shortly before he was released, uh, this man wanted to come home. So he wrote, he actually had another prisoner write this letter because of his lack of ability. And the letter, in essence, said this, listen, I'm going to be released from prison shortly. I will be given a train ticket. And I am going to be going past our farm, past the little town that we call home. And I'd like to know if it's okay if I come home. So if it is, there is that large oak tree by the uh, station there. Would you just put one ribbon, just a white ribbon in the tree, if it's okay for me to come home? I'll look out the window. If I see it, I know I can come back. And if it's not there, I, I understand. Well, the day came. He was released from prison. Sure enough, he gets on that train. But as the train got closer and closer to the family farm and to that little town, this prisoner, ex-prisoner, became unraveled. He told the passenger what was actually taking place. And as they got closer to town, he couldn't even look out the window anymore, so he put his head down between his knees. And as the train was pulling in the station, he asked the passenger, you look out the window, is, is there a, a, a white ribbon on this tree? Passengers looking, and he goes, No, not one. The whole tree was covered in ribbons. And that guy got off that train and he went home. 
Easter, it's God's declaration. It's like the cross. It's covered with white ribbons. It is an invitation for you and I who are lost to come to the Father, to know his great love, to know that the price for sin has been paid. And so the question I have for you is, are you a lost one? Why not come home? God's search and rescue mission is still on. He is still bringing people to himself, and he does so through his son. So have you really been found, and do you really know the love of the Father? Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, we know the joy and the love of the Father when we're trusting in his resurrected son. Friends, that's why Easter is so critically important. It is to tell us that the Father loves us tremendously. And there is great joy when each sinner comes home through the Son. Let's pray. Lord, you've got our full attention. And for someone who has come here today, perhaps they're even surprised that they're here. But today is their day to come home and to trust in you. Would they just simply pray with me and say, Lord, you know me. I'm a sinner. What you had written in that chapter 15 of Luke. That's my life. So today, I'm turning from myself, and I'm trusting in your son Jesus as my Savior. Lord, would you lead me? Would you forgive me? Be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us who have gathered here this Easter morning, because we do believe, would you fill us with an overwhelming sense of your love? May we live in your love. Daily, we know the joy of heaven, that you love us unconditionally. And so we pray that this resurrection morning would truly transform all of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name.